podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello there, my name is Miles Jupp, cricket fan, and together with my co-host Mark Wood, actual cricket man, we invite you to listen to Middle Please Umpire, a new cricket podcast containing the two of us banging on and sounding off together about cricket and quite possibly all manner of other things, while lifting the lid on Mark's life as an international cricketer. And as if that wasn't enough, we shall be welcoming some great guests along the way and chatting to them about life on and off the playing field as they spill the beans, drop some truth bombs and see if they can withstand the scrutiny of our brutal interrogations. Middle Please Umpire is available right now from all your favourite podcast providers. Hi and welcome to this week's edition of the Whistleblowers podcast. Uh, Your regular host, Martin Gritton, we... Fink is out caroling somewhere and has been slightly waylaid in the uh, deep of Cornwall, so he will hopefully be joining us uh, later. But in the meantime, we've got a stacked podcast with two fine guests. Firstly, the uh, chief football writer of the independent friend of the pod, Miguel Delaney. Evening. And uh, one of our uh, more regular contributors and and, and quite a favourite, Dan Trelfer. Hi, Gareth. Hi. Uh, let's go straight into it because we are doing a nice tight pod. I think we're all absolutely inundated with football this week, so we'll keep it to the main points. Uh, we're going to start with the ongoing uh, descent, it seems, of Sheffield United uh, back back to where they came, sadly, in their sort of slightly confusing uh, sort of implosion of uh, of Chris Wilder. Miguel, you, you covered this game for over the weekend and wrote a, a really interesting piece about potentially it simply being a regression to the mean and that it was a relatively unsustainable thing. Is this, it's, what did you see at the weekend? Uh, you know, do you think there's a way out of it or are they very much, you know, reaching the end of the journey? Well, the thing is, I mean, you look at Sheffield United's record, which is the worst anyone has ever had at this point in the Premier League era, uh, and it's appalling. <laughs> and then you look at how they play and a bit close to those results, and like they like they don't feel like the worst teams ever played in the Premier. League. They don't feel like feel like Swindon '94 or Derby '2008. I mean, even like nine of their twelve defeats so far have all been by one goal. And you could almost see that on Sunday, where had Burke scored that chance, they go and win the game. And it's just a totally different complexion around the club. And it does feel like there are, there's just an element of fragility about them at the moment where it could go either way. But you can still see the positive effects of what Wilder does. Where I suppose, though, where they are and the number of defeats is almost kind of like the flip side of last season and the inevitable negatives are overcome. I mean, I, I think with situations like Sheffield United and a lot of promoted teams in general, with like obvious exceptions like Wolves, given Wolves are essentially... Upper half Premier League club when they came up, but with, with a lot of these teams, we judge them by, by Premier League standards. When certainly in the case of Sheffield United, this was very, very much championship team that over that overachieved. And yeah, I think there is a little bit of regression to the mean, uh, and I, it does feel like we shouldn't necessarily be criticising Wilder basically for the effects of overachievement that something like this overcome. In saying that, you you can pick out maybe some flaws in their approach. I mean, it, it's one of those classic things where what made them good is also now what kind of has become problematic. And obviously when problems start arising, previous inconveniences become complaints as they head in the piece. Like I think there's a general view in the lower leagues that 
Wilder is actually seen as quite a basic manager. Uh, I know so much was made of the overlapping fullbacks, or sorry, overlapping centre-backs last season, but that was really seen as kind of Alan Nils' idea. And once teams rumble that, they haven't got much else. I mean, some of the stories we've heard about, like Wilder's training sessions on a Tuesday, it's always a 5K run, which is quite basic by modern standards. Yeah. But I suppose that created, in the first place, the spirit that has allowed them to overachieve and get players to play above themselves. But that's finite. And while I do think they have a championship squad, their recruitment has been quite poor. I mean, what they, they did spend a lot in the summer. Um, we haven't seen the fruits of that yet. And we certainly haven't seen it in terms of goals. And it's all adding up to a team that is still competitive in every individual game but just looks a bit short and i guess the maybe the, the biggest quandary now if you're if you're the board is even if you look to change things i mean could you possibly dig this team out of the hole they're in and then secondly if you're going to start making plans for life outside of the uh, the premier league are you not tempted to stick with chris wilder and see if he can repeat the trick there's, there's an interesting dilemma there, isn't there? In fact, this is almost worth a piece in itself. In that, and it's almost like the West Brom thing. Sheffield United, they could take the decision now. They're in the Premier League. They can still stay up this season, especially given the nature of the campaign means the points thresholds, they would probably be quite low. So they could, you know, dispense with Wilder, get some relegate, or sorry, survival specialists in, although the horse is bowls at an Allardyce already. Uh, but there's no guarantee on that. Whereas the flip side is they could keep faith with Wilder, reward him for what he's done so far. And you never know. I mean, we could end up with something like a, a Sean Dyke situation. I mean, like there, another, there's another classic example. Like Burnley first came up in 2014-15. They went down immediately. But they learned the lessons of that first season of the Premier League. They weren't the Premier League club at that point. Learned the lessons, consolidated, came back up. And by the time they came back up, they very much felt like a Premier League club and have been ever since. Uh, and there's almost... An instructive case there for uh, for Sheffield United. I mean, it would. I mean, whatever whatever the kind of debate about Wilder's approach, it would seem ex- exceptionally hard, very unromantic, to uh, to get rid of the season. Uh, Dan, I'm going to bring you in here. In terms, you, you obviously you know spend a lot of time with uh, QPR, your club, who've who've spent time between the two divisions. What what do you feel from you know, from that perspective, do you feel that sort of changing the manager has, has, has ever helped or, or do you just almost sort of delay the onset of the inevitable when you do that? Well, there's, there's a big debate about that at the moment at QPR because there's, there's a sizable faction that thinks that uh, Warburton's time is coming to an end after 18 months. And I mean, that is, that's the QPR cycle. It has been for well over, well, probably about 15 years now. Um, 18 months is actually doing pretty well. Um, I mean, when we went down the, the first time in 2012, we sacked Warnock in uh, in January. And I, there was, a, again, a faction of people that thought that, that he, he couldn't cut in the Premier League and he should have been sacked. But I, I was definitely of the opinion that we should have taken the relegation had it, had it happened, which it might not have done, um, because he was such a good manager at the lower level. It, I, to me, it was a, it was a no lose situation we either go down and as, as Miguel said learn from that experience don't just chuck you know millions and millions of pounds at it and I hope something works I mean in the event we did start that season but we we spent then spent an absolute fortune in the summer and were, were absolutely dreadful the following season um and and 
it's interesting because I actually I put something on the QPR message board uh, recently. I said, you know, which managers in the Premier League, you know, we're talking about sacking Warburton, which managers in the Premier League would you get rid of? And as 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 completely objective fans, no one said Wilding. Everyone said Wilding is doing su- has done such a good job for them. They 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 should definitely keep him. And if they go down, take the relegation and build again because he's, he's done such a good job. The only manager anybody said. Uh, that, that could go with Solskjaer if if United could get uh, Pochettino, um, and even that now, you know, with, with United finding some form, doesn't look like a particularly great decision either. So, no, I don't and, know. Uh, I mean, in the, in their situation, I would I would keep him. Yeah, and uh, I'd maybe you know switching things to to their opponents uh, is sort of a good indicator of, of how the winds of fortune you know blow in and out so quickly i mean Solskjaer maybe you know three weeks ago coming out of the international break was under a lot of pressure um he's had a number of of, of good away wins I, I believe they've still won all of their away games in the premier league this season and you know short of one you know particularly poor result that took them out of champs league they've had a really really good few weeks uh, miguel do you feel that you know Man United are a team that are succeeding in spite of Solskjaer, or do you feel that there is some credit due here? Um, I've always been quite... I mean, maybe not necessarily critical of Solskjaer, but basically I've just always felt that he's just not a top-class manager, never will be, and I just don't see the logic of a club of Manchester United stature persisting with what is essentially an experiment based on emotion when they can have their pick almost of, of so many really top-class managers. Uh, in saying that, um, I do think you have to give Solskjaer some credit for, uh, I mean, there's been a few times in his reign where everything could have spiraled out of control as started to happen under Mourinho in 2018-19, where it was just going to end this, or, you know, to, to use the famous Andre Villas-Boas phrase, at a, in 2012-13, a negative spiral. But he arrested that because the players like him and they play for him. And he does, he is capable of tactical tweaks that kind of suddenly in individual games get a lot out of the players he has. Um, and, and, and one thing that should be said as well, and I do think this is important, uh, but obviously Manchester United should be, given the squad they have, given the resource they have, they should be challenging for titles, for like the top titles. Um, and I still, even though their position in the league is quite promising now, I can't see them doing that this season. Uh, but of course, they've been some way short of that basically since Ferguson left. And they've also been some way short of what is entertaining football. And the one thing you have to say for Solskjaer is they are closer to challenging than any point in that time other than 27-18. But that was when City ran away with it. But also, so many of their games are actually quite fun uh, and entertaining. Great. And they- there is an identity in that no, there is. And, and the, there's spells within each game where they play, you know, genuinely fantastic football. Um, you know, obviously, you know, Fernandes impacts that greatly. And, you know, their, their front three, uh, you know, are sporadically brilliant. I, I, I guess one, one of the, the things we might point to is how much better Man United be if they didn't actually go behind in every single game they played. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> mind you, maybe that's it. You forced them to come out. And I mean... Like I don't want to diminish Solskjaer in this regard, but you do wonder when there's, when there's a bit of a merit to it that 
those contexts, and like, and it's almost true because Leeds are a team that, that we're, we're just going to come for them no matter what. And it's almost like maybe these attackers need, and our socialized approach need the openness to bring out something in them, or need the kind of that kind of uh, pressure. Uh, but it, uh, at the same time, I think there is still an element of chaos to their form, and we kind of need to see it over the longer term to see the, the true Manchester United here. I do think how high they are and how close they are to Liverpool right now is a little bit illusory. And no, quite. And I mean that that nicely segues into you know another game that you were across at the weekend, which was uh, Liverpool looking once again fairly imperious. I mean, they have had this huge spate of injuries, and I think people felt that if there was going to be a vulnerability in this this season, it was going to be in this kind of four weeks where you know they've lost their in, their entire back line, I guess. Dan, Dan did you see uh, any of the Liverpool game this weekend? I didn't. It was one of the ones I missed, actually. I saw the United um, United game, but I didn't. I didn't see that. I was, uh, yeah, I was a bit sad for Iberiese to be on the <laughs> on the wrong end of that one. Yeah, that's perfect. Well, then you can. Uh, I, I will slide my girl back in. Like, so I, I guess is this in terms of Liverpool's dominant form? Is it do you, is it because Klopp has just got such a supremely well drilled side now? Is, is there any reason why they've you think they've just essentially coasted through what should be a tricky period? Yeah, I think that's basically. I mean, it's well, it's both the, how how their drills, the system they play, and also the mentality of that team and the kind of. I mean, we talked about chemistry with Wilder earlier, but that's what what Klopp has that as well, as well as so much more. Um, and I think their persi- persistence through this period has been remarkable. And like, there's an inter- there's an interesting wider context here where. If you look at pressing stats in the Premier League, they are way down. Like what would have been mid-table numbers two seasons ago are top numbers now, which basically means and because of the schedule, because of the nature of the season, teams can't run as much. Uh, and it's kind of, you could say it's kind of almost causing a bit of a devolution in football in that way. Cops teams are one of the exceptions in that regard. They're still running as hard as ever. Uh, and it is remarkable. I mean, one of the expectations for this season basically since September I suppose that it's going to be lower points to win the league that 80 points could win it which is something we haven't really seen since the 90s too much I mean the odd time in the 2000s but but mostly it's been much higher and yet after a spell where they suffered the worst injury crisis in the league um, Liverpool are currently on on course for 84 points with a load of big players to come back uh, and I think and and then of course they went and did that on Saturday, which is probably one of the finest performances of the entire club era. Yeah. Uh, so it's ominous. It is a, a ridiculous, yeah, ridiculously emphatic, and I almost feel sort of a uh, uh, churlish bringing up one point. But I w- I was so fascinated, or continue to be fascinated by this sort of ongoing uh, competition between Mane and and Salah, um, and you know obviously uh, 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 Salah came on. And looked well, seemingly firstly incredibly annoyed to be benched, and then uh, when he came on, seemed to play with quite a chip on his shoulder. Is this is this something you feel drives Liverpool on? Is is there anything else there? Do you feel, or is this just the nature of you know top top high end uh, athletes always wanting to be the main man in their team? Oh yeah, it feels like there's a healthy spikiness there more than I think. I mean, you remember about two seasons ago when a lot of stories came out that Salah and Mane 
weren't passing to each other or were you know they were they were in a personal contest then but it only seems to have brought it the best in them and you know despite perceptions that there might be issues then Liverpool went and won a Champions League in a league <laughs> by, by record margins so uh, no, I mean I, I think it's just a continuation of that Nice um, uh, Dan in, in terms of Obviously, you've now uh, written a couple of books with some very uh, juicy autobiographical nuggets. Have you have you uh, ever covered any any serious uh, in team rivalries? Uh, I'm trying to think. Actually, I mean, you get you, you do get uh, players saying that they didn't they didn't particularly like other players, but I think footballers are, are, tend to be a little bit. Um, you know that they're not keen in in autobiographies to to sell a lot of personal scores. There'll be there'll be sort of uh, kind of people saying, um, yeah, I can't really go into this, or they'll hint at not liking someone. Um, but they will talk about fights. I remember, um, but that's 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 mainly sort of in between players of different different clubs. Very few. Uh, uh, I mean, you know, they do have fights on training grounds and stuff. I'm trying to think of any examples. I can't think of any off the top of my head. I, mean, I, th- I think one, they, the, they quite often don't want to upset their own teammates. No, the, the, the only one that really stands out to me is uh, Telly Sheringham and uh, and Andrew Cole, yes. who, who were very open about their their deep loathing of each other. I'm not even sure where, you know, what the genesis of that was. But it, I, I think maybe that's well known, like you said, because a lot of this stuff is is kept in house and in terms of other things that are kept in house tis the season for uh, for for christmas parties obviously mm. um and you know christmas parties in football clubs used to be fairly infamous and you know there was always leaked or there was a press opportunity i remember one photo of uh, the manchester united team out in like you know it was the the sort of the real peak fergie era uh, and there was a sort of this shot with everyone in their sort of Burton's casual wear going going down the street, which is it, it, it's quite a magnificent photo. It's worth picking up. It's uh, Miguel. Like there doesn't seem to be much uh, reported in the press these days. Is that is that something that reflects the sort of more professional nature of things around it? Is there is there a sort of almost a, a polite silence about these events? Uh, well, I mean, football's moved into a more scientific era. I mean, you only look at look at you know we talk about clubs pressing there. I mean, you can't do that if you're on the latch every week. And also a more international era where so many players just haven't come through that culture. And of course, so many young British players or Irish players, they, they, it's, it's similar now as well. They haven't really come up with the kind of, uh, I mean, it's just totally, I mean, like, it's, it's amazing to think about, think about it in that perspective. Like, as recently as 1996, Manchester United used to have the Tuesday club where the entire team would go like, on the, on the piss in, in the Irish pub in near Manchester Airport until Ferguson put a stop to that because he knew that you know with, with Wenger coming in, uh, oh, this was, this was before it was Wenger made a really big thing out of it, but he knew that we, they were the European standard and he would have been looking at teams like Juventus. Uh, you couldn't get away with that anymore. And over the past 24, 25 years now, we've seen the full effects on that where even even their Christmas parties tend to be quite tame affairs these days. It's a different football world, a more boring football world from that perspective. But it makes the football better, probably. 
And that's I, I think there's uh, in terms of uh, stories from the old days. That's something we're going to pick up in in part two. We're going to finish part one by uh, saying farewell to Miguel. He's got he's got more important uh, journalistic work to be done. Uh, Miguel, what 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 are you going to be across this week? Uh, I'm actually I'm on holidays from tomorrow. Oh, fantastic! <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, uh, so I. I get to miss the actual like the christmas rush although it's actually it's not too busy this year i think because we've got a little bit of a break between the weekend's games and saturday whereas usually there'd be a bit, it would feel a bit more hectic uh but i've got to, i mean the other classic around this time of year and what i have to do over the next two days is get all that kind of review of 2020 and preview of 2021 stuff done um not much to say about this year of course <laughs> no quite quite indeed well thank you very much and uh we will catch you uh, very soon, and uh, we will see you for part two. Cheers, lads. If you want an e-bike that doesn't look like it's made for the shopping precinct, something that's less Mr Bean, and more Steve McQueen, Check out the range of bikes from London-based Cooler King. From dope 250-watt city bikes to Harley Bobber-inspired 750-watt beasts that can tear your face off while leaving your smile intact. Cooler Kings are made in limited numbers, yet highly affordable. Check them out now on the web at cooler.bike or find them on Instagram with hashtag CoolerKingBike. Cooler.bike. E-bikes that are cool AF. Welcome back to part two of the pod. We are still here with uh, noted football author Dan Trelfer. Uh, Dan, in terms of your your two books you've put together, which is a essentially a was it a collation, uh, all the best bits of all the football bio, uh, autobiographies you'd ever want to read. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have uh, do you have any fine particular festive tales? I'm assuming that the Christmas parties do loom large in, in yeah. Your county. Well, it, well, it's interesting actually because some books it does loom large and they're quite happy to tell stories about what's going on. Um, Lee Howie's got quite a good tale of a massive uh, dust up between the entire team, sort of dressed up. I think I think Alex Ray's dressed up as Madonna. In the Vogue era, I think <laughs> something like that, and they have a massive fight with some locals over something. Uh, so you get you get people like that, which is quite good. Mick Quinn is is I mean he's graphic in his description of what what went on at, at parties in his era, which is not you know not particularly pleasant for the apprentices. Um, and well, I suppose in well, in some ways it was pleasant, but uh, yeah, read the book and find out about that. I probably probably shouldn't go into it on here. Um, uh, but yeah, there's a whole we've got a whole chapter on it in the in the newest one, which is Second Yellow, which is out now. Um, and, and it's interesting you talk about Man United because uh, Brian McClare in his book says, "Oh, we just go out for a, an Italian meal." That's what he claimed in the early '90s. And Brian Brian Robson, in fact, uh, in those days, would organise a party for the players' kids as well, which was very oh. sweet. Yeah, which is quite nice of these to do that. So he says that they just went out for a quiet Italian and a glass of wine. I'm not sure whether we believe that. Um, but that's an example of perhaps not going into it too much. Because by the time Dwight York gets there in the late 90s, 
he basically organised the United Christmas Party himself and relates a tale where he just he, he, he just wanted loads of women to be there. So he went to the tra- uh, Trafford Centre with a load of invites. And when he saw an attractive woman, he went up and invited her to the party. And, and he said it worked brilliantly. And there was a three to one ratio. And he was absolutely delighted with how it all came out. I mean, <laughs> it's incredible. You can imagine anyone doing that today. And that, so th- this was Dwight himself to sort of, you know, Dwight, infamous beaming smile. Yeah, as if he's Just, handing out flyers as people walk into the traffic centre. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine, like, no, no, they'll all be there. No, no, yeah, Nicky Butler definitely be there. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. so Sharp's left. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, Sharpie's gone, and he's actually yeah. doing a private thing with his own fan club that night. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which, a... which he did do. Yes, which yeah, exactly. You're absolutely right. He used to bus bus fans in from all over the country, and and do a little disco. Say a few words. His own little sort of smash yeah. hits poll winners party just for Lee Sharp fans. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Um, but the. I think the, the the best story, which is in which is in the new book, is um, is a story told by Mark Ward. Do you remember Mark Ward? Yes, I do. West Ham and Everton. Yes. And when he was at Everton, uh, he um, went at Christmas party. It was fancy dress, and a lot of these ones where they where it's sort of a bit things go a bit awry tend to involve fancy dress. And he. Uh, I can't remember who he's dressed up as actually, but he's he's messing about. John Ebrell is dressed as Popeye, <laughs> and John Ebrell, for some reason, over the course of the night, keeps coming up to him and just punching him on the arm. And then Mark Ward's getting a bit annoyed about it, and then finally he hits him too hard, and Mark Ward starts chasing him around the bar. Anyway, he runs past. He's chasing after him, and then he runs past someone who is not a player. But he's a, apparently a neighbour of a player that's been invited, who's dressed as a cowboy. And he goes, he goes, give me your gun, I'm going to shoot Popeye. So he grabs a gun out of his holster and continues chasing him around the bar and then, and then loses sight of him. So he goes up to the bar and uh, there's Neville Southall and Barry Horn. And he doesn't say what Nev is dressed as, unfortunately, but Barry Horn is dressed as the Pope. And... He goes up to him and goes, have you seen John? He's dressed as Popeye and I'm going to shoot him because he keeps punching me. And, uh, and, then, and then this was sort of at a time where the Pope's security was, was quite a big thing with a Pope mobile. It was quite, you know, there was, yeah. yeah. And um, Barry Horn sort of jokingly said, oh, you should, uh, why don't you shoot me? I'm, a, I'm, I'm the Pope, why don't you shoot me instead? So Mark Wall went, yeah, all right. And just <laughs> pulled the gun out and shot him thinking that it's just like a cap gun or something. Sure. It was, it was a real gun. And no. not only was it a real gun, it was loaded with blanks. So um, so obviously that, that meant that it, that a bullet, but, a, you know, a, a harmless one in terms of, like, actual, of killing him. Something is killed. dispensed from the chamber. Something is dispensed from the chamber. And, 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 and like, you know, sparks came out of the gun. So it hit him full in the chest, knocked him on the floor. But not only that, the sparks ignited his Pope's no. costume and they had to put him out. Yeah. So that's the story of uh, Mark Ward Mark Ward looking for Popeye to shoot him and shooting the Pope instead. That is incredible. I mean, it's just, you it's know, amazing. I think probably the most famous, like you said, not very pleasant 
story that I think is quite well known is um, is uh, a certain cigar cigar in the eye by uh, Joey Barton. Yeah, when he's a man, which is an awful story, and you know, don't want to make light of, but um, you know that that one is widely got. I'm amazed stories like this aren't more sort of widely known. It, it does. I do wonder if it speaks to that sort of you know that infamous code of a murder that, that yeah. goes on within all the footballers. Well, it's interesting because I I did a, a, a different podcast with Grits. And we we did uh, one where we talked about Christmas parties, and we told a few tales from the autobiographies. And then and then what we normally do in in those situations is we throw to Grits and go, Grits, tell us one of your brilliant stories from your career. And on Christmas parties, apart from a couple of things, apart from um, he had he had a really good story about one of his teammates who uh, who's, who who. Um, sort of didn't you know perhaps didn't use deodorant very much and was not not the nicest smelling player and they did secret santa and someone got him a jumper that was covered in those um like uh nice smelling things that you hang in your car amazing and it was all put all to, and he said and he said that felt a bit cruel uh apart from stuff like that he was very quiet on christmas parties Trust. i think you're right i think there is a little bit of a a little bit of code there yeah, you want you want to stay on the Christmas card list. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, sadly, I you know, recounting the joys of Christmas means that we've actually run out of time to to cover sort of miserable uh, football fixtures. Like I, I, I probably don't even have the time to complain about Spurs losing to Leicester. Uh, yeah. My my bet noir being being Brendan Rodgers, a, a, a manager who I'm not that convinced by. Turns out he he's a lot more convincing. Uh, up against Jose Mourinho than, than, than I expected. So, you know, sl- slightly disappointed there. And, you know, otherwise, it's I, strange enough, after uh, a week ago, which was a very sort of upturned Premier League with, you know, Chelsea and a bunch of other teams uh, struggling, the only sort of uh, big team still struggling is is, is Arsenal. We always yeah. like to say the word for... Um, for their sort of un- unfortunate aptitude this time losing losing to Everton it's as as a sport of a fellow London club do you you know do you feel that uh, uh you know ask it's their time is coming you know after 25 years of imperious form is it you know do you enjoy uh, rolling around in the mud with them or, or are you slightly sad I, I don't really know I mean I, I think a lot of us a lot of fans of other London clubs I don't know if it's fans around the country there's a little bit of schadenfreude because we could never really understand the sort of the, the anti-Wenger um, stance that a lot of their fans had. And, you know, we, we all, I think we all thought, be careful what you wish for. It's a similar thing at, at Charlton with Kerbishley, you know, that their fans sort of ran out of patience with him. And you know, look at Charlton since. I mean, they've, they've come close to what it was like under Kerbishley. Right. I mean, I, I, you know, I, but on the other hand, I do think Wenger's time was, was coming to an end, but it, I think that's what it happens, isn't it? To big clubs when you've got someone that's been there for a very long time and their presence is so big in the club and it's so influential, you know, in every, in every way the club has run. Once you take them out, it's incredibly difficult to recover from. And I don't think anyone's going to be able to turn it around and make it into something new inside sort of a year, 18 months. I think it is a, it is a sort of three. You've got to stick with someone for three or four years, probably. 
Yeah. But these days, you know, who does? You know, no one really does, do they? No, indeed. And, you know, we've talked about how potentially it's it's a more systemic issue and there's this issue at the top. But at the very least, it does feel like, uh, you know, you need to get it back down to its studs and uh, and rebuild it back up. But that's probably a conversation for, for another time. We, we've reached the end of this week's podcast. We will be back somewhere in the middle of the, the maelstrom that is the Christmas uh, uh, Premier League fixture list. I think there's pretty much uh, some football every day between now and uh, whatever 2021 holds for us. So uh, we will we will be back hopefully in a week and, you know, five pounds heavier uh, and, and full of full of festive cheer. Uh, Dan, do you have uh, do you have uh, anything on in terms of, uh, you know, your your football love? Obviously, your your, your book Second Yellow is out now. Um it, is it available as an ebook? Can people buy it as a last? Yeah, it's available on the Kindle as well. Yeah, or as an ebook. Um, yes, yeah, in any format you like, pretty much. I'll read it to you if you, Thank you. bring me up, and <laughs> I'll read it down the phone to you. I'm quite happy to do that. You leave some nice voice notes. But it's uh, well, you know, we look forward to to version three, which I know you you you've hinted that previously, and uh, until then, I'm sure we will have you on the pod very soon. Cheers, Gareth. That was a whistleblowers. This is a playback media production. To listen to all our football podcasts, visit playbackmedia.co.uk. Sports Social Podcast Network.